You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, welcome. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Ryan, but my nickname is Riz, and uh, I've had it for almost my whole life, and so you can just call me that, even if you don't know me well. I go by Riz. I'm the church planning pastor here at a Reality, and uh, we're just over two months old, and so we're excited for what God is doing and really blessed to be a part of kind of what God is doing on this island and being able to kind of partner in God's kingdom going forward, and so we're really excited for that. Um, got sent out from the Reality family of churches, and uh, we got sent out from Carpinteria, California, which is just south of Santa Barbara. And if you guys have watched the news, there is a raging forest fire right now that's like really um, endangering the city of Carpinteria. Uh, just south, Ventura got really um, hit by that. A lot of homes were lost. And so right now, um, for the first time in like 15 years, Reality Carpinteria services were canceled because... It's that close, and most of the town is evacuated, and um, just talked to Pastor Britt, which is, he's the founder of Reality, and he's at his house just trying to kind of save it, but he's in the foothills, and so um, pretty gnarly situation going on just kind of from our hometown where we got sent out, so I wanted to have you join me as we pray for them, and just ask God to, um, man, just stop that fire from getting any forward, and um, just that he would... uh, Man, just anoint the firefighters to do what their, 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 uh, their job is to do and uh, just that he would supernaturally stop the fire. So why don't you join with me with that? <clears throat> God, we come to you because you are God, that you're sovereign, that you're in control, and that uh, everything is under your power and your sovereignty. And we just ask, God, by your mercy and your grace that you would just spare uh, that little city of Carpinteria from any more uh, fire. We ask that you just stop the fire, you stop the winds, that you would just really put your hand upon the firefighters and the rest of the people there, you'd keep them safe. But ultimately, Lord, we ask that, uh, that you would be near to that place, near to that town, uh, near to the people there and those that have lost their homes and kind of just lost everything they had. We ask that you would be the God of all comfort, that you'd be near to them, that you would surround them with family and friends and resources to start rebuilding. Um, but we do pray, God, that you ultimately would just stop that fire from spreading any further. And uh, God, we just ask that you'd get glory in the midst of uh, uh, scary tragedy um, that's happening there and a scary circumstance that, you, that in the midst of that, that you would, uh, that your peace that surpasses all understanding would guard hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we pray that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, pretty crazy situation. But uh, <clears throat> without further ado, we're going to get into the Word of God this morning. If you've been with us, you know that we've been in the book of Mark. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Mark. And we're in Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark 3, 7 through 19 is our text. Uh, I'm teaching out of the New Living Translation. If you don't have that translation, uh, I have it most on the screen. Uh, or uh, there's Bibles in the back you can go grab every Sunday morning if you need that also. Or share it with a neighbor next to you if they have New Living Translation. Uh, but here we go. Mark 3, 7 through 19. Why don't you read it with me and then we'll get right into it. It says, Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and east of the Jordan River, and even as far north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. He had healed many people that day, so all the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them down to the ground in front of him, shrieking, You are the Son of God. But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve of them, and he called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the twelve he chose. Simon, who he named Peter. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Pretty cool nicknames. 
Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and uh, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. This is God's word. Why don't you pray with me? God, thank you for your word this morning. And thank you that you've preserved it for us, that probably most of us in this room have it in our laps this morning. And we know that much of the world does not. But thank you, Lord, that we have the freedom to read it and study it and that you've also left us the Holy Spirit to minister the truths of your word to us, to be our helper, the one that would come alongside us and give us understanding of what your word means and how it relates to our own lives. God, we thank you that your word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet, that it shows us the ways in which we are to go. It gives us direction and instruction how we ought to live in order to give you glory. It reminds us of what we were created to be and created to do, that we're, to, that we're image bearers of God. God, we thank you that we have your word. We have it, and it's empowered by your spirit. We receive it as your word, that God, it's God-breathed and God-inspired, and that's profitable for training and correcting and rebuking so that the man or woman of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. We pray that you would do that today, God, that you would have your way with us. We want whatever you see fit to give us this morning. We want to be open to your loving correction. We want to be equipped for doing life outside of this building during the week. We ask, Lord, that we would be a people that are committed to you and follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us uh, the last several weeks, we've been looking in depth into the interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And there's been some kind of heated discussions or heated questions that have come up. And there's been a lot of tension in between the Pharisees and the, what Jesus is doing, whether what he's teaching or how he's you know, going about life, how he's performing miracles, what he's doing to people. And uh, we've, we've seen five different interactions into that. The first was when uh, the friends lowered the paralytic into the house and Jesus forgave this man's sin. And that was the first time where uh, the Pharisees kind of stepped back and could not believe what Jesus had done. They could not believe his claim to forgive sins and they called it blasphemy. And that was the start. And then all of a sudden, uh, Jesus began to dine with sinners. I mean, to dine in the house, in Matthew's house, this Roman tax collector with these unreputable sinners, the outcasts of society, Jesus was literally reclining at their table with them. And the Pharisees could not believe that this holy, righteous rabbi that was claiming to be, you know, the son of God, that people were calling the son of God, would dare eat with sinners. But that's the kind of God that we serve, right? He's a friend to sinners. And then also, uh, they came to him and they said, hey, why aren't you fasting? You know, John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. We, uh, you know, religious leaders of the law, we fast twice a week. Why aren't you fasting? And Jesus reminded them the point of it, that he himself is the bridegroom. And while he's present, there is no need to fast. There's no need to mourn over it, but there's time to celebrate because God himself was with them. And then this last week, we talked about the Sabbath. There was two interactions between the Pharisees and Jesus when, in light of the Sabbath. His disciples were eating grain as they walked along the road, and the Pharisees called that breaking the Sabbath, and then Jesus led them through the reasons and the purpose of the Sabbath, and we saw that in detail last week. And this morning, in the book of Mark, we kind of end that little five-story series of, of the Pharisees' interaction with Jesus, and we slightly switch gears and the attention turns to the crowds that are following Jesus and specifically the 12 disciples, 
right? In our, in our story, in our, in our text this morning, we see two things going on. One is we get a, a greater description or we're reminded of who is following Jesus, where they're coming from, and what is happening to these crowds. And then also we see uh, an in-depth list of the followers of Jesus. I mean, the disciples, the apostles, those that Jesus chose to follow and what their lives are to look like now. And so the attention kind of is off the interactions of the Pharisees, and it's now on the two other groups, the, the, the crowds, or the fans, I like to call them, the fans of Jesus and the followers of Jesus. And so in, our, in verse 7 through 12, we get this description of the, the area in which people are coming to see Jesus. See, word had traveled. You know, it's mouth-to-mouth. Mouth. There's no Instagram, Facebook, and, you know, there's no email. And so it's literally like, like you carry information by your mouth. And so it's gone viral right now, and, and the, the news is just spreading in concentric cir circles from northern Israel in the Galilee region. It's just spreading it's just spreading the news of Jesus and what he's doing. I mean, people that for their life were paralyzed are now walking. I mean, he's forgiving sin. I mean, he's, he's calling tax collectors to follow him. He's healing every kind of sickness and disease. And, and everyone that comes to him is encountering these, these miracles. And word is spreading and from all over northern Israel and beyond People are coming to see Jesus. That's incredible. Something like this has never happened before. And many see him as the Messiah. Many have been waiting for 800 years for the Messiah to come, and he might just be that person. Some obviously don't believe. Some are skeptical. Some think he's uh, committing blasphemy, but others are believing, and they are seeing this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the divine son of God. And so logistics is becoming a problem. You know, back then in ancient Israel, besides, you know, like a synagogue that can maybe fit a couple hundred people, or the temple in Jerusalem, which was kind of made to hold thousands of people throughout the year, I mean, these little towns and little houses were not made for large crowds. And, and literally, logistics was getting hard. And if you remember, this is not the first time Jesus has actually told people, like, don't tell people who I actually am. If you think I'm the son of God, don't tell people yet because it's going to get hard to even get into town. And if you remember, at the end of chapter one, he does this with the leper. He miraculously heals this, this guy of leprosy. And he tells the leper, don't tell people what just happened, which is just kind of odd. But what happens is, is the leper does it anyway. And then it says that Jesus couldn't even enter the towns anymore. He had to like be in the outskirts secluded because he logistically could not get into town. He couldn't sleep in town anymore. He couldn't even go into these towns. Because there was so many people coming to see him. I mean, it just became this like mob mentality. People were so eager to see Jesus. And even in our text this morning, it says that he instructed the disciples to have a boat ready, verse 9, so that the crowd would not crush him. Like vast numbers of people were coming. And then it says in verse 10, he healed many people that came and the sick people were eagerly pushing forward to touch him. I mean, this is like, you know, kind of an out-of-control mob trying to get to Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, dude, I can't even be around here anymore. Get, get me a little boat to go off the shore so I can, like, still be near people, but I won't be, like, trampled by people. This is like a logistical thing. It's kind of funny, but that's what's happening here. So many people are hearing about Jesus that he instructs the disciples to get a boat just off the side of the coast so he can still preach and teach and be with them, but um, actually be effective at what he's doing. The crowds came and Jesus dealt with it all, right? He healed many people, but also... 
if, if you remember, there's, there's people that are demon-possessed. There's people that are under the power of darkness, that they're being tormented by the evil one. And um, literally, they're, they're kind of semi-controlled by these demons. And so what happens is, is that uh, Jesus already, we've seen, has power over that. In the synagogue, um, in Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus at the beginning of that uh, cast out demons, and the demon flees, and we see that Jesus has power over darkness and power over the demonic realm. But there's all these people, not only sick, but these demon-possessed people. And when they come close to Jesus, literally our text this morning, it says that these, these, these people that were possessed by evil, verse 11, when the spirit, evil spirits inside of them caught sight of Jesus, the, the evil spirits would throw these people to the ground in front of them, shrieking, you are the son of God. So, I mean, put yourself in this scene. I mean, it's kind of a crazy scene. There's mobs of people trying to get to Jesus. Everyone is sick. Everyone is, has an infirmity of some sort in this crowd. People are pushing forward to see Jesus. Jesus has to get a boat to even deal with it. And then in that crowd also, there's these people that are under the power of darkness. And when these people come and see Jesus, they scream out, you are the son of God, as they are convulsing on the ground. Like, dude, this is like not where I want to be. This is like, you see this on the news and you're like, I got to go that way. Or I'm so glad I'm not there. This is like a bad news story happening. But they're all coming to see Jesus. And it's significant here. I don't know if you know, but it, even the demons know who Jesus of Nazareth was. Like, even them. I mean, the Pharisees didn't believe it, but even the demons cried out, yeah, that is the Son of God, and we're fearful of what he's going to do to us. That's why they were, that's why they were screaming, because they knew that this Jesus, the Son of God, has power over them. It's the same thing that we see in the book of James. It says that, that demons even know that there is a God, and they believe and shudder. And it's talking about faith and works, and it's talking about how the only true test of your faith is if you have works accompanied from that faith, because even demons believe there's a God. And that's what's happening right here. Even the powers of darkness are recognizing that Jesus is who he said he was. It's this crazy scene that's going on. And Jesus' response to these kind of demons, you know, yelling this out is, hey, don't, don't, don't tell anyone that. Don't say that. And again, that may be odd, but there was this, this time where it was not time yet. It was not time for Jesus to be revealed in that way as the Son of God. Yes, the kingdom of God was at hand, and he's showing himself to be God, but it was not time that it was declared that he should be the Son of God. It wasn't time yet. And again, it was also a logistical problem. And so Jesus responds to them and says, don't, don't tell anyone that. He sternly commands the spirits not to reveal who he was. In proper time, it would be made known. But you have to understand, for the most part, this, this kind of crazy, this, this crowd, right? This crowd, for the most part, we're just fans, and what I mean by that is they had a need and they know Jesus could fulfill it and they were just coming to get that need met and then most of them left, right? If someone was blind, they came to get sight and when they got sight, for the most part, they left, and right? And they would tell other people and other people with infirmities would go and they would be healed, right? Men with uh, shriveled hands would go and they would get healed and their hand was good now. And for them, that was their greatest need. And so once their greatest need was met, Jesus, that was cool, thank you, but I'm gonna leave now. And so for the most part, these people had heard and gathered to receive something from Jesus, but many didn't stay. They just came to get what they wanted and what they were interested, you know, heal my leg, fix my eyes, and then I'm out. It just, it just was this big kind of hype situation. There was a need that needed to be met. It got met. They left. For the most part, these crowds or these fans of Jesus were just merely fans and they were not followers. They weren't followers of Jesus. They just came to get a need met. And when their need was met, they were gone. And there's a danger 
for us too that we can just be a fan of Jesus but not necessarily a follower. And I think that's where, that's where it, get, it gets real, real quick. Because the truth is, is we're really good at like picking and choosing what parts of Jesus we want to like obey. Or when it comes to his word and when it comes to like instructions of his word of how we're to live or not to live or what to do or what not to do, we're real good at like cutting and pasting, picking and choosing. Right? We pick and choose what parts of Jesus we like. Or we love to do this in his word, but not that. Or this stuff, this stuff like really lines up with how I'm already living my life, and so that sounds really good. But ooh, this part is kind of in contradiction to how I like my life being lived, and so I'm just kind of like, uh, maybe that doesn't apply to me, right? And skip the page. Or maybe we just don't want to really have... We don't want to talk about that too much more. And so we just turn the page and keep going. And so often this can be up that the, the stuff of God's word and who God's, God is and what he asks of us can confront our sin and it can confront our lifestyle. And we just say, mm, not for me. Like I'm good with Jesus sometimes, but I'm not good with Jesus all the time. And by far the most common is we like to seek Jesus when it's convenient for us. But like if it gets hard or inconvenient, our tendency as human beings, and I'm speaking of myself as well, a tendency if God's word and God's will doesn't line up with our own will and our own plan, we just like to jump ship. We just like to, to kind of forget about it or, you know, we stop going to church or we just stop reading his word because there's something in it or there's part of it that does not align with what we want. And that's like these fans, these crowds, they came for one thing, but they failed to stay and hear what Jesus had to say and what their lives are to look like in light of believing him as the son of God. They just came for this one thing. It was convenient. It was easy. They got their needs met and they ran. And so often we can do the same thing. We get like too busy um, I did youth ministry for a long time, and the number one thing that you would hear from a high schooler or a junior hire um, when asked, like, hey, where have you been? Or, like, you call them up because you haven't seen them at church for a while, and you, that's one indicator that, hey, you're probably not doing good with Jesus if you're not going to church anymore. That's one indicator. It's not always true, but it's one, one thing. Like, you're not in the community of believers anymore, so where have you been? Oh, I've been I'm just so busy. I'm like, dude, you have no responsibility other than going to school. Your parents tell you what to do. Like, you are so not too busy. And you knew that, but that was like the, the immediate answer. And, um, you know, years ago when I transitioned out of high school ministry and into adult ministry, I was just thinking like the excuses would be different. I just was like assuming like, dude, you've grown up. You kind of like, we, you know, you get better at excuses, I'm hoping. Or like, why did you finish? Where you been? I've been so busy. I'm like, seriously? I, I think when I first did, I would say that, seriously. That's what the high schoolers tell me. I got, it's just, I mean, and, and again, there is real seasons of life where you are really busy, but you get my point. When, when, when Jesus or his word or the things about Christ kind of get in the way and they become inconvenient, we often turn into fans of Jesus and not followers. We often go, yeah, it's too hard, or it's too inconvenient, or I'm too busy. And so we fail, or we falter, or we stop following, and we just come to Jesus when we need Jesus. And then we become, you know, maybe those kind of Christians, so to speak. Where we wouldn't call ourselves not Christians, but we definitely, like, only pray when we need something. Or when like something gets really hard in our life, then we turn back to God. Instead of consistently being with Jesus just to be with Jesus, we turn into, um, you know, the fire insurance type Christians. Where it's like we only go to God when we really need him instead of just following him because he's God. And, and we're designed to, right? But a follower of Jesus is something very different. It's, it's, it's very different. And we kind of see that contrast here is there's these fans of Jesus and there's these followers of Jesus. And so what happens in the rest of our text, verses 13 through 19, is Jesus leaves this lake. He gets out of the boat. He somehow gets through the crowd and he goes up to the mountains. 
and he chooses his disciples or the rest of his disciples because if you remember, so far in Mark's gospel, he's called a few unto himself, right? He's called Peter, James, John, and Matthew. He's already got four of his disciples, and he, so he, he's calling the other eight to come and walk with him, right? This is our uh, full list up here of the 12 disciples, Simon, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas, who obviously we know later betrayed him. These are the 12 disciples, right? We see four of them, right? We see Peter, James, John, and Matthew, like one, two, three, and seven on the list there. Those, those guys are already walking with him. But again, we see Jesus leaves the crowd and he goes up to the mountain and he calls the other eight guys to come be with him as his disciples or as his apostles. But there's two important things that we can note from the text. Number one is, is that Jesus called the disciples to be with him. And if you remember from the very first weeks of a book of Mark, rabbis did not go out seeking their own disciples. Disciples always went and found the best rabbi and always hoped and prayed that they could come under his leadership. Rabbis never called disciples. It always worked the other way around. Even by the fact that Jesus called these guys to be with him is, is extraordinary. But Jesus called these guys to be with him. And number two is that he sent them out with authority to be his witnesses. So he called these guys to be with him. And then after these guys were with him, he sent them out. And time frame wise is this is uh, shortly into his three-year public ministry. And so these 12 were with him for three years, day in and day out. Most of the New Testament, you're going to see these guys with Jesus throughout everything that happened up to the crucifixion. Right? And you're going to see the different interactions. You're going to see things that Jesus taught them. They, they were with him. They had a front row seat into everything that Jesus did. And that's the way Jesus discipled these guys. He did life with them. They learned how to be like Christ by being with Christ. They, 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 he called these guys into relationship with him to do life with him. And then when Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to heaven... He left them the Holy Spirit, right? And now it was their time to go. It was their time to be sent out to be witnesses. And so it's really significant in our text this morning, there's two important parts. When Jesus calls us into relationship with him, he calls us to be with him, and then he equips us to send us out. So the first thing I want to talk about is this idea that Jesus called the disciples to be with him. Right in verse 13 and 14, we see that. Jesus went on the mountain and called the ones he wanted to go with him. Verse 14, they were to accompany him. And it's, it's absolutely crucial that we get this. Like, we, we get the order of it. He called them to himself first. See, does it say that Jesus called them to serve? No, it doesn't say that. That, that comes later. Does it say that Jesus called them to perform or do some task? No, it doesn't. First and foremost, it says that Christ's primary purpose is to be with them. And that's true of you and I. The main thing, the, the main purpose that Jesus wants from you and me is to be with him. The serving, the pouring out, ministry, evangelism, everything else is secondary to the primary purpose of being with Jesus. You know, so often, so often as you maybe are uh, either growing up in the church, like in our kids' church, or when you're a new believer, you might get asked the question, why did Jesus die for you? And our, our uh, simple answer might be, well, to forgive our sin. And, and that's true. But why What's the purpose of our sins being forgiven? So that we could be washed as white as snow, right? Forgiven of our sins so that we could stand in God's presence for all of eternity. So I think a better, more complete answer would be, why did Jesus come and die on the cross? So that you and I could be with him for all of eternity. Sin was just the barrier. It was the roadblock. It was the thing in the way. And so he needed to get rid of our sin so that we could be with him. 
right? Evangelism is temporary, but worship is eternal. Like, the point is to be with Jesus. And the same is true to us before we see him face to face in heaven, is that we would commune or be intimate or abide or be with him. And so often we struggle with that because we're such a performance-based society and we always want to do things and we always want to say, well, well tell, give me a list and I'll just do it. Well, yeah, there's parts of Christianity that are, that's a list of like, hey, this is what you should and shouldn't do. But when we make it about a list and we fail to make it about Jesus, we miss the point. What's your primary purpose of being a Christian? It's to be with Jesus. Service and pouring out and evangelism and ministry comes second. And I would say that this is the most important aspect of Christianity, or one of, but can be the most mysterious and elusive one. Because it's really hard to be near or close to something that's intangible. Right? If, if, and that's why, you know, I think we struggle, struggle with our relationship with God sometimes because God is this, can be this ethereal thing. It's only in scripture, or we may see the hand of God moving, or the effects of God, or we may see answered prayers, but, we, but God isn't like right here, or for the disciples, Jesus isn't right next to us right now. And so this idea of communing, or being intimate, or abiding, or being with Jesus can be difficult to comprehend. But that's no reason to not do it, just because it's hard or it's complicated or it can be confusing, but it's all the more reason to strive to figure it out. Like, how can I be close to you, Lord? How can I be near to you? How can I hear your voice? How can I speak with you? Those are, those are like the tenets of Christianity or why we do the things we do, why we worship and why we pray and why we read the word of God, why we're still before the God. These are attempts, these are practices so that we could be with Jesus. And just because it's hard and complicated and because it can be ethereal, it isn't a reason to just throw it out. It's more of a reason to strive to do it. But again, the, pri the primary purpose as disciples, as followers of Jesus, is to be with Jesus. And after that, then and only then, we are, though, to serve and labor and be sent out and do ministry. Right? Jesus gives us the power and authority to do so. It isn't just like, oh, we're supposed to just like be with Jesus and wait for his return. No, we're actually supposed to be with Jesus and then be sent out and be his ambassadors in this world and be his witnesses, but only after we're with him first. And at the end of his three-year ministry with these 12 disciples, he commissions them. And we fall into that category also as his disciples. We are commissioned to the task of evangelism and discipleship of the entire world. We actually have a big task. Jesus didn't just give us like a little breadcrumb, like, hey, be with me, and then like just do a few things, and just kind of like be cool, and take it easy, and he's like, actually, go tell the entire world about me. And you have to remember, these are like fishermen from Galilee. They have never even gone more than like a day's worth of travel. But he says, he says, hey, this is right before he ascends to heaven in the book of Acts. He says, don't leave Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem at that time. Don't go anywhere until you receive the Holy Spirit. But once you receive the Holy Spirit, then it's game time. And he says, okay, once you receive the Holy Spirit, I want you to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. <laughs> you have to understand, like, back then, I mean, a lot of the world, right, thought the world was still, like, flat. It had an end? Like, what, what, even, what even is that concept for these disciples? This was the hugest task you could ever ask. Right? And we, we see that in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. It says the 11 disciples, so the reason why there's 11, Judas, remember, betrayed Jesus. He's not in the picture anymore at this time. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus has designated. He, just kind of a fun fact. Do you see that in our text this morning, Jesus went up to a mountain to call the disciples the first time? And then he goes up to another mountain to commission them. I don't think it has any significance, but it's kind of cool. You should go up to a mountain, be with Jesus right here. <clears throat> 
When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, and this is what he says. This is his commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Like, that is our commission, We have, in this room, if you are a follower of Christ, this is our commission. Like, these are our orders. This is our task. And that doesn't mean that all of us are called to go to the ends of the earth, but all of us are to participate in it some way. And Jesus, again, like I said, right after this, in the book of Acts, he gives a little uh, more meat to it. He says, Jerusalem is like their hometown. It's like Honolulu. And then uh, Judea would be like outside of that region. Maybe it's like, I, I don't know what that would be. That may be like the Hawaiian Islands for us. And then the ends of the earth is the ends of the earth. That's what it means. But what's neat is kind of like a weird fact, fun fact. But Jerusalem is almost as far as you can get from Hawaii. If you actually look, it's like almost the other side of the earth. So it's kind of neat, kind of fun. I extrapolate it. So this is like, don't, don't repeat me on this one, okay? But when Jesus is talking about going to the ends of the earth, I mean, Hawaii is that. When he's in Jerusalem saying, hey, I want the gospel to go forth to the ends of the earth, that's Hawaii. That's pretty cool. I don't know. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> the gospel's made it. All that said, the gospel has not reached, I mean, this might be geographically, but there are so many tongues, tribes, and nations that still do not know the gospel. There are billions of people that have not heard the good news. There are no churches there. There are no Christians there. And so the task is not finished is my point. We might think, oh, we've arrived, and a lot of the world is evangelical and has heard the name of Jesus. There is much of the world that has never There is much of the world that still needs the church, followers of Christ, to go where no one has gone before. My point is, is that there is a task. First, we're to be with Jesus, but there is a task to do. And any service that we do is an act of ministry. We have this word ministry, and we think it means vocational ministry. We think only pastors are in ministry. Actually, as believers and followers of Jesus, we're all in the ministry. We are all to minister the truth of God's word to a lost and dying world. And a primary core or facet here at Reality is something that we've... um, really learned to, to use and to live by is this idea that all ministry should flow from a place of intimacy. Like all ministry, all service, all pouring out should first start with a place of being or intimacy with Jesus. So be with Jesus and for you, before you do something for him. That's the point. And we see that here in the text This isn't something new that just reality we've discovered, but it's something that we really believe in and try to do ministry out of. Uh, One of my favorite uh, people, A.W. Tozer, if you've ever read read any of his stuff, kind of a modern-day prophet, um, not alive anymore. But one of his famous phrases is that we're to be worshipers first and workers second. And I know some of your stories in this room I by, by far don't know them all in detail, but I know that for, for many of us, we may have been in a place of ministry or pouring out. We may not have done this. I know that in seasons, I haven't done this, and it leads to burnout. It leads to serving Jesus without being him. You failed to like be in connection with him, but you've been pouring out, and you've kind of mismatched your relationship with him and your service to him and you think your service is your relationship and all of a sudden you crash and burn. Happens to, I mean, happens to a lot of people that serve heavily in ministry. But I think we see in our text this morning that there's really two marks of a follower of Jesus and it's a withness and a sentness. Be with Jesus and then be sent out. And, but it's crucial that we do it in that order. It's, it's, it's intertwined, so it can be hard and it can be messy. 
but I think it's so important that we first and foremost care about our relationship with Jesus and then what we do for him and always keep that in the forefront of our mind. Jesus actually prayed this for us. It's called the high priestly prayer and at the um, end of that prayer in John 17, he actually prays for us. Jesus prays for us that we would do this rightfully. He says this, John 17, 20 through 25, it says, I am praying not only for these disciples, talking of these 12, but also for all those who will ever believe in me through their message. Do, do you see that that's us? I pray, this is Jesus praying for us. I pray that they will be all one just as you and I are one. Remember, this is Jesus and God the Father. So he's saying he has been one with the Father. I pray in the same way that as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe who sent me. Verse 22. I have given them glory, the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May the experience May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love me as much as you love them. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you, you gave me because you love me even before the world began. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do, and these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. There's this, like, there's this, in, there's this, um, intertwining that happens. He's saying we have to be one with the Father so that the world will see that we have been with Jesus. Like there's a oneness that we have to have with God in order to go serve him. We need both, but it has to be done in the right order. And so the question for us kind of looking at these two groups in our text this morning is are we fans or are we followers of Jesus? Right, like, for me, I don't think I really grasped following Jesus uh, completely until a few years into walking with Jesus. And what I mean by that is I got saved in junior high and high school, and just uh, everything was kind of comfortable. Me and Jesus were good. He never really interrupted much of my life. All my friends went to church. Um, it kind of fit into my schedule. Everyone I knew went to church on Sundays. People prayed. Like, it was pretty comfortable. It was pretty easy. Everything in my life kind of lined up. And so following Jesus um, never really challenged me. I mean, it did in the little areas. But for the most part, uh, it, it was good until... I got asked to stop everything I was doing and to, you know, quit college and quit kind of like what I had planned on doing uh, career-wise and to start doing vocational ministry. Like, hey, do you want to be a pastor at a church? This is the question. Do you want to do junior high and high school ministry was my specific question. And I wrestled with that because it got in the way of my plans and my purposes. I had the 5, 10, and 20-year plan out. I was 20 years old. I was right in the middle of college. And I had it planned out how I was going to love Jesus, but also kind of do what I wanted to do. And it challenged my following of Jesus. And I went through some heavy sanctification in coming to my decision. Like, I had to, like, repent of and cut away a lot of selfishness and unwillingness to follow Christ because it got in the way of what I wanted to do. My relationship with Jesus wasn't convenient anymore. It was actually messing with everything. But I knew it was right. I knew it was what I was supposed to do. And so, uh, it ultimately was the best decision and it was right and good. But it was like this definitive moment in my faith at an early age going, am I a fan or am I a follower? That's what it came down to. Like, am I going to follow you, Lord, even if it's not convenient? So the question for us this morning, you know, and I, I, still, I still struggle with that of like different things God calls me to, and I'm sure we all do. But like, is it for you when we follow Jesus, like do we follow him even when it's convenient, even when it's hard, 
or it doesn't line up with our own plan. And if we are followers, right, if we are, if our, we are like claiming to like follow Jesus and be disciples and be saved, then what does our like withness look like? How are we fostering this intimate relationship with Jesus? Like how are we cultivating a relationship with him? Because I'm going to tell you, it just doesn't happen on its own. So same thing with any close relationship with your life. It takes work. It takes effort. A good relationship doesn't just come about. It actually takes a lot of time and a lot of work and a lot of communication. And so if we are to be intimate and close and to abide with Christ and to be with Christ, how does that look for you? How, how does that look? It may be like, I don't know how it looks. <laughs> then, then that would be the time to assess that and be like, okay, how do I? How, how do I navigate that? Ways in which we do that, obviously, is prayer and worship and the word. It's spending time with him doing those things. But I think it's a, it's a good question. It's an it's a, it's a important thing to assess. And if we're followers of Jesus, if we think about our withness, then what does our sentness look like? After, after striving to like be with Jesus, how is our witness? Like, how is your witness in your community, in your, um, your influence, in your sphere of influence? In church terms, we would call this, like, gathering. And we would call when you leave those doors until, like, next Sunday, you would call that, like, the church scattered. Right? Gathered and scattered is, like, what you would say. So in your scattering, right, your time would probably consist of time with family, probably have most of you have full-time jobs, um, you have friends, you have obligations. What is your witness like in those things? Can people tell that you have been with Jesus? Like, could, can people tell that you have spent time with him? Even if you don't, like, open up your mouth and, and talk about Jesus, just by the way you live your life, could people tell? that your life looks like Jesus? This is like the, 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 the prodding, prompting questions that I think our text would ask us this morning. Because that's exactly the response that some of these disciples got when Jesus had left them, ascended to heaven, and they were now on their own being witnesses. So this is the book of Acts now, Acts chapter 4. This is Peter and John. They're preaching the gospel. They're being sent. They're living for Jesus. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And people are getting saved. And the church is growing. And there's this radical thing going on. And the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are not liking what's happening. They get arrested. They, they get brought before the council. They're, they're being asked questions of what are you doing. And in Acts 4.13 we see the response that Peter and John get. It says that now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they, weren't un, they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Do you see that? It wasn't that Peter and John were these like skilled, trained Christians. Maybe even they weren't super gifted. I mean, Peter was the one that denied Christ just like weeks earlier. I mean, Peter was like <laughs> not the model believer. He messed up. He, he faltered. These guys were uneducated and untrained and really nothing special in the world's eyes. But why was their witness powerful? It's because they had been with Jesus. So what will make our witness powerful and potent and fruitful? It's our withness with Jesus that will make our, our, our witness powerful and fruitful. Like, that's what does it. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's good to get equipped and trained and learn the Bible and know the Bible. And those are all good things. But the most important thing is that we spend time with our Lord and Savior in his presence changes us and forms us and and we begin to and what that does is it begins to make us think differently and act differently and he changes us from the inside out and so that now we're now we're around people and people are like you're different what happened why why do you not do those things why do you choose those things why did you forgive that person at work they deserve that or why did you show mercy or why did you show grace like they deserve that when you act like jesus 
in the midst of a community or a culture or a workplace that does not follow Jesus, you will just by nature stand out. You may not even have to like, like open your mouth and people would be like, dude, you're different. And it will begin to witness to them that you have been with Jesus and then the questions will come and then the conversations will happen. And my hope this morning is that this would just prompt us to think about what kind of relationship with Jesus we have. Because if we're just merely a fan and coming to Jesus when it's convenient or when we want to, then that's not really going to change us, and that's not really going to impact our witness, and that's just not the way that it's supposed to be. So the question is, are we a fan or are we a follower? In other words, is your relationship with Jesus just casual or is it committed? Maybe, maybe in relationship terms. Like, is it just a casual thing where when it works, we, we hang out, Jesus? Or is it a committed relationship where it's you and Jesus day in and day out through it all? And allow this, allow the assessment of yourself to guide you in prayer. Like, maybe it's like you need to realign your priorities. Maybe God's speaking to you right now through his word. And it's like, man, yeah, I haven't been in church or like I've been faltered. I only kind of like do go to Jesus in these times where I need him and not really all the time. Don't let that like bum you out right now. Don't let this, this message condemn you. That's, that's not uh, God's purpose or God's design or my heart or my design. It's that. His love would lead us to repentance. Like his love, because he loves you, would lead you to go, hey, I I want you to be with me. You're designed to be with me, so come unto me. Like allow his love to sweetly convict you um, and then do something with it. Don't just walk out of here like, yeah, I'm not doing things right, so I I, I I I don't know what you want me to do. Well, the first thing is just like tell God that, like communicate to him. Either do that on the carpets or go pray with someone outside or do it in the quietness of your heart as you sit during the second set of worship. Just go, God, I haven't been living for you. I want to live for you. Help me. Give me the strength to follow you. That's where it would start. And secondly, it's like maybe involve friends or family or other people here. Like, can you help me? Can you keep me accountable? Can you like check on me? And then it would be assessing your life of like, okay, where, where, do I need to give that thing to the Lord? Where, I need, where do I need to follow the Lord instead of just come to him when I need something? But ultimately, my prayer for us is that we would be a people that are first with Jesus, but then we are empowered to serve him in being sent out. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God that cares for our hearts first and foremost. That you're not a God that just wants to convert us so that you can have more workers. But you first and foremost desire that we as a people would be near to you. That you just care about us and love us so deeply that you would send your son to die in our place so that we could be with you for all of eternity. And blows our mind how much you love us, God. How much you want to be with us. And I pray, Lord, in the midst of our performance-driven, task-oriented culture that we would be free of making our relationship with you a thing of performance or a thing thing of like doing over being. Would you help us? Teach us how to abide in you. Like teach us how to be near to you. Teach us how to be intimate with you, Lord, and teach us these things. We want to be a people that are committed followers and not just casual fans. We love you, Lord, and we ask, God, that you would continue to work in our hearts during this time of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.